Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. There are many interesting things happening in and around the field of pathology, and on this podcast, I speak with the people who are doing those things. If you're listening to this episode on release day, that's April 14th, and that is PA Day, so it seemed appropriate to have another pathologist assistant on the show. So today, I'm speaking with Sarah Garner. Sarah is not just a pathologist assistant, she is an instructor at Tulane University and is the director of the pathologist assistant program at Tulane. Today on the show, we'll talk about how Sarah got into teaching and how she came to use the concept of the flipped classroom. We'll talk about her use of social media and how she uses that for teaching as well. And we'll talk quite a bit about her series of anatomy manuals called Garner's Guide to Gross Anatomy. This episode was a lot of fun and I hope you enjoy it. Now, here's Sarah Garner. Okay, so uh, you are a very busy person. In addition to the multiple teaching positions you have at Tulane, including being the director of the Pathologist Assistant Program, uh, you're also very active on social media, including Instagram and Twitter and uh, YouTube now. And of course, there's your series of anatomy manuals. Uh, and we're going to talk about all of these things. Uh, oh, and of course, in your spare time, you're uh, also working on a PhD. Um, <laughs> but so the first thing I want to talk about is the teaching. When, when did you start becoming interested in teaching and, and actually start teaching students? So I kind of just fell into teaching, actually. So if you would have asked me like 10 years ago if I would be teaching now, I probably would have just laughed. <laughs> but <laughs> I kind of just fell into it. So in undergrad, I was lucky enough to take this cadaver-based anatomy class. And okay. I loved it so much. And the next year, my professor asked if I wanted to TA for it. And so being selfish at the time, I was an undergrad student, I said, of course I do, because I just want to get back in the lab and dissect, right? And over the course of that first year of TAing for him, I completely fell in love with teaching and I absolutely loved it. And so I, I stuck with TAing for a while, um, I think two years here at Tulane for him. Okay. And then, then I went to PA school and I was like, I can't give up teaching. I love it so much. And so I found a couple ways to teach um, where I went to PA school, which was Rosalind Franklin. So that was really, well, sure. really great there. Uh, what, what kind of teaching did you do at Rosalind Franklin? So there it was, um, we took gross anatomy right when we first started in the summer and we took it with a bunch of different types of students. So the pathways, the PAs, who else was in that? The physical therapists and nurse anesthetists. And then after we finished our class, the medical students and podiatry students started their gross anatomy. So that's when I got involved. And so I got to teach them in the lab and um, I was a tutor for the lecture too. So I got to experience that. And it was completely different than my experience TAing before that, because here at Tulane, it, was, it wasn't as clinical based because it was more geared towards undergrads and grad students. Whereas at RFU, it was for the medical students. And so there was a lot more clinical stuff in there, which I thought was really fun. Sure, sure. So you were already teaching medical students even back then? Yeah. Okay. You went from there and you started teaching then at Tulane, right? Yeah, so that also, I get just kind of fell into that too. <laughs> so that's why I think I was hey. really meant to teach these things that I teach now because it all just kind of happened. So during my first year of PA school, my professor that I had TA'd for gave me a call and he said, hey, um, do you want to come teach here? And I said, well, I'm in school, you know that. And he was like, yeah, but it's you. You'll find a way. I'm like, you're right. You're right. I will. 
So I actually started teaching at Tulane as a second year PA student. So I accepted a, an adjunct professor position. And so when I was in PA school doing my clinical rotations, then I would teach at night after that. And so it just like it just happened to be perfect timing. And so then I've been teaching here at Tulane ever since that. Okay. And uh, what kind of uh, classes are you teaching there? Um, that first year, it was just gross anatomy. And then I kind of expanded that. So I started teaching um, a separate head and neck gross anatomy course, a neuroanatomy course, um, histology. And I did that for the next year. And that's when I also got involved at the med school to teach anatomy and histology for the med students. And then now I've added a bunch of pathology classes to that for the PA program and for our medical students. So it's 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 kind of just a bunch of different anatomy and pathology right now. Okay. Uh, from what I've read and, and seen about you, anatomy is what you really have the, uh, the passion for. Um, I think it's my favorite thing to teach, but only because of the environment that it's in. Like if I had to pick my favorite topic to teach, it would be pathology hands down. But the environment okay. that you have in an anatomy lab, it's just there's nothing like that. Like the students just love it. It's so interactive. The dissection, like it just really helps students to understand things. And you can't really get that in a classroom setting, at least not as much. So as far as like actually teaching it, yeah, I think I would have to pick anatomy as my favorite. Okay. That makes sense. And now you're the director of the pathologist assistant program uh, there at Tulane. Uh, and that's, that's your first first group of students this year. Is that, is that right? Yep. The Tulane 10. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, can we talk, can we talk a little bit about uh, how that program started, how it came to be? Absolutely. So when I was in PA school and when I first like, came to Tulane to do the clinical site and the teaching here at Tulane, I wondered why we don't have any sites in the South. Because when I was in school, we didn't really have that many clinical rotations in the South, which is why I reached out to Tulane to see if they wanted to start a clinical site. And it just blew my mind because they didn't even know what a pathologist assistant was. And it oh, sounded wow. like, I know. And I, because they were like, what do you mean? What's that? And I, so I explained it to them and they said, wow, that's amazing. We would love to collaborate and do that. And so I started talking to other people in the South and a lot of people were just completely unaware that the profession even existed. And a lot of labs would even hire people, just kind of just random people and then train them. And they didn't have any background at all and didn't go to PA school. And they called them pathologist assistants. And I'm not saying that's bad. There's a lot of on the job trained PAs that I know and love and really respect. But the fact that sure. they didn't even know that there was school for it, that just blew my mind. And so it started with I wanted to have a school in the South because I thought that would really help promote the profession in the South. And then as I started to get more and more involved in teaching, I was like, I just want I want to I want to do our own school. Why should we not? And part of that was because I had such a wonderful experience during my clinical year at Tulane as a student, like the pathology faculty at Tulane were just so wonderful. It was an amazing environment. I learned so much. And I wanted to be able to have that for more students. So that's kind of how it started. Where does it go from there? Like, I know you're, there's different levels of starting a program, it's like serious applicant status and, and things like that. How, how does that, how does that work? It seems like that it would take a lot of time. Oh, it, it takes so much time. So the, one of the problems with starting a new program is you can't get accredited until it starts. 
because a lot of the accreditation process depends on student feedback. Because even if a curriculum looks perfect on paper, you never know if it's going to be as great as you think it is. And so part of the accreditation process is actually, you know, evaluating the program, seeing what the students have to say, which to me is really important anyway. Even if that wasn't required, I would, of course, want to do that. But basically, it starts out with you submit um, a request to NACLS and say, you know, here's our our intention. We want to start a program and you start the application. And after that, you have to be approved. So the program director has to be approved. There are certain requirements that a program director has to have. And the medical director has to be a board certified pathologist and they have to be approved. And then after that, you can, you know, start your curriculum, start your first class of students. But um, the problem is you have to get that serious applicant status before they graduate or they can't sit for their board exam. So it's this it's this weird timeline of you can't really get accredited until you have students. But if you don't get accredited before they graduate, then they can't take their exam. And so you have to be really on top of it. And it does take a lot of time. So after you start, you do what's called the preliminary report, which is essentially just um, kind of like telling the program story. So you write all about your curriculum and you demonstrate how all of the different standards for the program are met and basically document all that. So our preliminary report, it was over 400 pages. I mean, it's a lot of documentation of stuff. Yeah. And then after that, they'll, NACLS will either approve your preliminary report or they'll, you know, cite you on some things and tell you where you need to improve. And then after you get approval on your preliminary report, that's when they allow you to start your self-study. And the self-study typically takes a long time because that's where you start to bring in all of that student feedback. And once you submit the self-study, that's when you get serious applicant status. Once you get the serious applicant status, your students are now eligible to sit for the exam. And then between serious applicant status and full accreditation, that includes a site visit from NACLS and a couple other things. So right now we're in a really good place. Um, We turned our preliminary report in about 20 to 22 months ahead of time because I really wanted to make sure that we we got what we needed for our students. And so we passed our preliminary report and now we're working on our self-study. So I feel really good about the accreditation process and NACLAS has been wonderful um, throughout the whole process. Great. Okay. That's, that's very interesting. I I didn't really know that entire process, how, how that'll work. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't really understand because there's only a couple programs. And so unless you've been involved in that, you don't really know. Like when I first started thinking about starting a program, I had no idea. And so I had to reach out to NACLS and find out more about the process. It's really interesting. And they're, all of their stuff is online and available to everybody, but not a lot of people have read through their standards and whatnot, which I find really interesting. Oh, okay. Another thing I wanted to talk about uh, as far as the, the teaching goes, you use a concept called the flipped classroom, um, which I I did a little bit, little bit of reading about that's uh, that's interesting. Can you can you talk about that? Like, how did you first start uh, using that concept, and and how's it going? So I think part of that is a little bit what I was saying a little bit earlier about how I love teaching anatomy because of the class environment. So if you're stuck in a classroom and you're just standing up at the front of the room and lecturing, it's not very right. interactive. And so the whole reason for flipping a classroom is that you can interact with your students. And I think I started it just because. I really love all my students and I want to be able to actually interact with them. I don't want to just stand up at the front of the room and lecture at them because I learn a lot from them too. And so I, I think of them more as my equals 
And so having discussions, I feel like is just more productive for everybody. I would much rather have a discussion and be able to interact with them than just stand up there. So I try to think back to when I was a student and what would have helped me in classes. And so I feel like if I can use real life examples and experience and discuss with them on that equal level, if I can make things relatable and easily digestible for them, then I think that helps all of them. So I don't want to just be like a human textbook standing up at the front of the room. And so by implementing a flipped classroom, basically what you do is you give them all the materials ahead of time. And so it's very student directed, it's self-guided learning, which can be really tough for students at first. But then once they get in the classroom and we can actually talk about things, um, they they typically report that they really they feel like they learn a lot more and that class is more enjoyable. And it's definitely more enjoyable for me. So I think I started it for other reasons. But then as I've grown as an educator, I've learned more about the different pedagogies. And especially now that I started my Ph.D., I'm learning a lot of different things. And the research is really starting to move more towards flipped classroom. I think in a couple of years, pretty much everybody's going to be doing that. So. I don't know. In my experience, it's been really great. So the material that the students get ahead of time, is that like a PowerPoint? Is that videos or or all of those things? It just depends. So I like to do like a pre-recorded video. So I give them a PowerPoint or a handout and then I'll record a video ahead of time. And so it's kind okay. of like almost sitting in a lecture, but they're doing it on their own time. And the advantage to that is that they can put it on double speed, which I don't recommend anybody does that for me because I talk really fast. <laughs> but <laughs> you can do double speed, you can do half speed, you can pause and take notes. And so it's really on their own time. And some people like to do, you know, 10 minutes and then think about it, study it and then do another big block. Or some people like to watch the whole video at once. And so by giving them that opportunity, they can really use it to, I guess, help them with their individual study techniques. Okay. And then the actual in-person class time is used for getting a deeper understanding of the material. Is that right? Right. Because theoretically, if they're coming and they already have that first pass at the information, then I can kind of like quiz them during lab or we can have discussions or we can go through a case and say, you know, based on what you learned, we're going to do a case now. And so once they have that understanding um, it just goes better. And there have been studies shown that your first exposure to material, you're only retaining like 5% of that versus if they've already been exposed to it on their own and then they come to class, the retention rates skyrocket like 75%. And so anything oh, that I'm okay. now talking about or with them or whatever, they're now actually retaining that information a lot better. But do you use this method in all of your classes or just some? No, so some of them don't really fit for that. Um, anatomy, it's great because because we're in the lab and it's very interactive and it's small groups kind of working together. It, it's perfect for that. But things like okay. histology, that I still do a classic lecture. And so the way that I kind of overcome that, you know, teaching at them type thing is I like to use interactive software where whatever I'm drawing on my PowerPoint slides as we go will show up on whatever device they're using. And so they can follow oh. along and then I can build in like interactive questions. And so I can do multiple choice or, you know, short answer, anything like that in the middle of class. And what's really cool is they can then use those after class to study from because it'll save the questions for them. So it, it's not like I'm still lecturing, but it's not just lecture. And so it makes it a little bit better, but it's still not my favorite. Okay. I've noticed too, uh, especially with the 
the BA students, there's some videos of them actually teaching. It looks like it's them teaching the parts of the class. Is that part of the flipped classroom concept? So that is actually something that uh, we are incorporating into the PA curriculum, which I think is really cool. So they have the opportunity to create these teaching assignments. And then those, at least the classes that are in this semester, they're taking these classes with other students of other educational levels and majors and programs. And so when we post those videos or whatever it is that our PA students made, it's not only helping them learn it and the other PA students learn it, but it's then also helping the other graduate students and undergraduate students and, you know, anybody on Instagram that wants to learn, which I think is right. really cool because one of the best ways to learn something is to teach it. And so basically they're either assigned or can choose a topic in each of their classes. And then they're given full freedom to come up with whatever type of teaching assignment they want. And so they can do a video, they can do labeled pictures, they can do anything really. And I think at first it was difficult for them, just like it would be, you know, with a flipped classroom, because most of them have never taught anything before. But the general consensus now is that it really helps them learn whatever the topic was and that they're really enjoying it. And I know from talking to current applicants that the general consensus from, you know, viewers on Instagram is that they really enjoy it, too. So I think I think it's a really great thing. And one of the goals of that, it's, you know, a while off, but we're going to create a whole website with a library of all of these different teaching tools. So say like eight years from now, when we've had eight classes, they can now go back and learn from any of those. And so can anybody anywhere. So they're going to do it during their clinical rotations, too, where they're going to have gross photographs and they're going to write up a little clinical history. And then those will be available to the general public, because one of the problems right now, which is one of the reasons I started my Instagram, is that you can't really find gross pathology images online. It's right. you can, but there's not that many. Yep. And so once they move into clinicals, that will be a whole library of teaching resources for anybody to use, which I think is going to be really great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to the uh, social media. Since you mentioned Instagram, how long have you been using Instagram for for pathology education? I think I, I, I started about, I think, the summer of 2016 because I started as soon as I graduated from PA school. I remember during my my time in school, I wanted to start an Instagram page and my school didn't want me to, which I was frustrated at the time, but now running a program, I completely understand sure. <laughs> why they didn't want us doing that. Like I completely understand. And so I remember during my clinical year, I started saving a bunch of pictures and saving things that I knew I would one day want to use either in my lectures or on social media or whatever. And so I'm pretty sure as soon as I graduated from school, I started the page and I started it as an anonymous page. And so way back, you know, when I first started, I didn't have my name on there because I was really worried about HIPAA and sure. really worried that I would be in trouble. And it's frustrating because that's why a lot of people are not on social media posting things like this and promoting pathology because they're afraid of backlash from employers. And at the time, there wasn't really any sites that were doing that. And so I felt like I couldn't. But I remember at the AAPA conference in 2018 in New Orleans, um, Jared Gardner came and talked and I yep. had talked with Jared Gardner a few times on social media and he actually is a Tulane alumnus. So, Hey Jared. Um, but he kind of, I talked to him at the conference and he actually was the one who was like, no, it's okay. You can, you can have it be not anonymous. And so it was at that time that I actually associated my name with it and kind of moved on from there. And it's interesting because 
you would think that it would be the content that would draw people in. But I think just changing it from anonymous to an actual person, I think that really helped grow the following. And I'm not saying it's because it's me. Like, I think just having a name really helps the followers feel like it's a person and not just like a a random website. You know what I mean? Sure. It makes it more, more real, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, uh, Dr. Gardner, he's written several papers about, uh, using social media for pathology and he gives talks on it all of the time. He's uh, probably one of the original adopters of social media for pathology, especially uh, Twitter. And I I think he does a YouTube channel as well. Yeah, he's really great. And I really appreciate that he published those articles and he did it for the reason that if an employer says, you know, you can't do that, then we can say, no, here's a published peer reviewed article saying, yes, we can. And I think that definitely really helps. And pathology is huge on Twitter now. And I think a large part of that is due to Jared. So I think that's yeah, really great. Um, yeah. We actually just recently in our one of our PA school classes, we had a whole talk about, you know, photography and social media and all of that. And there were a lot of articles of Jared Gardner's that I had our students read. So he's really wonderful. He's done a lot for pathology. Right. Right. Matter of fact, uh, one of your more recent uh, Instagram posts was uh, from the Tulane group on women in medicine. Uh, it was it was a workshop on social media. So that was put on by the Tulane um, Women in Science group, and it was put on by Dr. Mary Mulcahy, who's an orthopedic surgeon here, and she is also on Twitter and Instagram. And so I went to talk to her and talk to the other participants and kind of just brainstorm about ways that we can improve social media. And really, I just went because I have, you know, had a couple of times at work where People have brought up my page and it has almost become a problem for me, but that's a a whole nother story. And so I really just wanted to meet some of the other people at my institution that are using social media and posting things about patients and things like that. And so it was a really great experience. And I got to talk to a lot of different people that are interested in the same things. Sure. It's it's great to go to events like that. Can you talk about some of the other uh, social media posts that you've had that then have been particularly popular or or memorable for you? So this is interesting because I, (laughs) this is probably really bad for me to even say, but I don't use the Instagram analytics like at all. I know that that's something I should be doing. And that's actually something we talked about at that workshop because Instagram will give you, you know, what time of day is best to post and you can post on certain days and times to get better followers and all of this stuff. But I don't do it to have followers. I do it just to promote pathology, but you know, I should probably do a little bit better job about planning my posts more so that I can reach even more people. But I figured you would be asking a question like that. So I actually went into the analytics earlier this week to see which were some of my more popular posts. And the overall most popular was this post that I did. It was an anatomy review of a head that I had cut with a bandsaw sagittally. And it was just going over like the basic anatomy of a head. And that reached, I think, like 300,000 people. And then the other one that was really popular was a review of abdominal vasculature. So mainly like the GI tract and all of that vasculature. And that was like, I, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand people. And then other than that, it's all of the pathology cases that have the higher views and the higher likes. And so I think it's interesting that it's part um, anatomy and part pathology. And then I also went into the stats on who is actually following, which I didn't even know was a thing. 
again, oh. <laughs> kind of embarrassing, but it tells you like the age range of who's following and like what time of day they're looking at the page and all of this stuff. And so it's really interesting because there are people po- following the page that range from the 13 to 17 year old group to all the way above 65. But the majority of people that follow me are in that age range of either 25 to 34 or 18 to 24. And then following okay. that, it's 35 to 44. So I don't know if that's just the nature of social media, but that's actually the exact audience I want to hit because I want to be able to influence young people who are trying to figure out what they want to do and provide some insight into other options. But I also want to influence other medical professionals and and promote the importance of pathology and PAs specifically, because I feel like other people in medicine don't even know what we do. So how can people that aren't in medicine know what we do? And another thing that was interesting was it's actually 72% women and 28% male for me that follow me. So I thought that was really interesting. It is interesting. Although I think uh, uh, among PAs, that's roughly our, our percentages as well. It is, it is more, more women than men for sure. And then recently you started posting on YouTube. Are these some of your lecture materials from from your classes? Yeah. So I don't really know much about YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I posted those earlier this week because with all that's happening with the coronavirus right now, I feel like a lot of people were reaching out and asking for online learning materials um, Mm because they're either bored or they need help in their classes or whatever the reason is. And I figured, well, if I'm making online content for my classes right now anyway, why not share and let even more people learn? So those are just some of the videos I, I gave earlier this week for our pathology class. I don't know how active I'm going to be on YouTube because it's there's a lot of rules that go into it. Like I would, I would not want to break any copyright law or anything like that. Like for the lectures that I make that go with my book series, like you have to be really careful about careful about what types of pictures you post. Sure. Plus, I don't know. I feel like some of that it's not really fair to my students if I'm sharing all of my information for the world. So it's it's a hard it's a hard struggle for me because I am the type of person that I want everybody to learn that wants to learn, but at the same time, you know that's sometimes just not feasible. So we'll see. I don't know how active I'll be on the YouTube. I just thought that it might be helpful for people right now since they're stuck at home. Sure. That makes sense. Okay. And since you mentioned the book series, let's move on to that. Uh, Garner's Guide to Gross Anatomy. When did you come up with the idea for this? This is a huge project. (laughs) Yeah. um, It just kind of happened. So I guess, so I've been teaching anatomy, if you count TAing, I guess it's been, I don't know, eight years or something like that. And I've grown increasingly frustrated for my students at the types of materials that are out there for them to study with. So the problem is like in a classic anatomy class, you'll have, you know, the textbook and you'll have a dissection manual and you'll have various lectures, especially if it's like for a medical school or a PA school or something like that, you probably have a bunch of different lecturers. So they all have different lecture PowerPoint formats. They all have different methods of teaching. And so just that is already very overwhelming. And then on top of that, the dissection manuals that exist go over every single little detail of anatomy. And while I think that that's important because I'm an anatomist, like I, I do think that all of those are important. They're not all equally important and a lot of them are not clinically relevant and these students can only hold so much in their brains at once and so i feel like the problem is that these dissection manuals are way too wordy and 
the students reported for years to me, like, you know, I'll read this dissection manual and I have no idea like what I'm actually supposed to do, or do I really need to know the 400 different structures that this one chapter mentions? And so I feel like a lot of times they're just overwhelmed and they have no idea what's going on. And so I was like, well, how can we fix that? Um, how can we create a dissection manual that would help? And when I talk to the students about it, they say, you know, we want to see how to do it because you can tell somebody, you know, cut medial to lateral three inches, I don't know, medial to this, blah, 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 give them all of these things. But that's right. so hard for them to visualize because they've never done it before. <clears throat> and so at first I was like, well, I'll just write my own dissection instructions. And so I did that for like a semester, but still it was like, well, they can't visualize that. So then I, I moved on to making some videos. So I would do like review videos and I would do dissection videos and I would give those to just my students. And the feedback was great. The students really liked it. They said it really helped them. And years ago, when I first started teaching here in our old anatomy lab, my classes were small. It was only about 20 students and it was usually only 10 at a time. And so I could teach them all individually and I would go over all the structures with them and point them out and walk them through everything. And they loved it. They did really well. But then over time, we made a new anatomy lab so that we could expand the class. And now I have anywhere from, you know, 50 to 80 students at a time. And it's just not feasible for me to do that. And so what I wanted to do was create a way where I could still be personally helping each student, because that if I if I had my choice, that's exactly what I would do. But obviously, I can't do that when there's that many of them. So I was talking with a student one day and I remember she said, she was like, I just wish that I had a mini Sarah that could just sit on my shoulders and teach me everything like you're doing right now. <laughs> and I was like, well, why can't we do that? Why not? So I started recording all of these videos and compiling it all. And I was like, well, I should just make this a whole series because it's not just my students here at this campus. It's not just my medical students. Like, I'm sure that medical students everywhere are struggling with this because I thought back to my days at RFU when I was TAing that. And the students struggled with the same thing. So I was like, well, why should I limit this to my class? I want to make this available to anybody. Plus, on top of that, like some students just are not at institutions that can have cadaveric dissection. Like at our school, we are very, very lucky to be able to have that opportunity for not only the med students, but the undergrad and grad students. And so if students are trying to learn from a model somewhere else, if I can provide them with education on a, an actual body why would I not do that? Right. And to take that even further, these people were selfless enough to donate their bodies so that people could learn from it. And so some of the pushback I got when I first announced these books was that, you know, that's it's not ethical. It's not legal to be posting pictures or videos of a human body. And to me, I think it's the exact opposite. I think it's selfish to keep that confined to the four walls of our lab. If that person wanted people to learn from their selfless donation, then why not make it as many people as possible? Like as long as you're doing it in a respectful way, I think the more people that can learn from their donation, the better and the more meaningful that that donation is. So that's kind of like how it all started. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I don't think at the time I realized what a big <laughs> project it was, but it, it has been, it's been something doing it. Yeah, I can imagine. So it's, it's planned to be five volumes. You've got two already that are available and this is an ebook only uh which is mm -hmm. interesting uh choice although i understand because you've got the videos embedded right within the book and uh right as you're saying the the videos i think you did do them very respectfully they're you know they're 
limited to just the part of the body that you're talking about at the time. They're very well done. It's hard to tell in some of them. You have someone else holding the camera, right? Oh, no, that is strapped onto my head. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, most of those, it's just that I'm either holding the camera with one hand and pointing structures out with my other hand, okay. or I use a GoPro strapped to my head, which that took a lot of work to figure out how, how to do that. But part of the reason I chose ebook is... Um, not only for the videos, but you can embed their technology is so cool. You can embed all of this stuff. So I embedded like interactive quiz questions. So another thing that students reported wanting is um, practice practicals, because that's how they're tested in anatomy in real life. And there's not really many examples of them to practice that. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I would do these review videos and then I would do tags yeah. and I would number them and take pictures of them. And then they can use the interactive quiz feature in the ebook to type in their answer and check it. And then when they're done taking their practice test, they can watch a video where I go over all of the different answers on the body. And so I feel like that when I was doing that in class for my students, that's how they were learning the best. And so now I can put that in the book. And if I put that in a paper book that was printed, while there is the advantage of them being able to bring it into class, unfortunately, it can't be interactive like that. So I personally would rather have a printed book, but it's just not feasible because then I would just have another book, just like all the other books that already exist. And I don't think that that's the best way for them to learn. Right. And the other really great advantage is that anytime I update it, I just press a button and it syncs with anyone who's bought the book. So I know a lot of people release books and then change a couple pages and five years later release a new edition and then their teacher requires the new edition. And so right. students have to buy these expensive books. I didn't want to do that to people. I'm not trying to take people's money. Like I could sell these for a lot more money than I'm doing. I'm not trying to make money off of it. I'm trying to make education better. And so I try to keep them very affordable. So by doing the ebook, I can then give people the updated version anytime I want, which is really nice. And it also saves me on the publishing fees because I talked to a few different publishing companies and they wanted to make it so expensive and they were going to take a huge cut. And so I was like, well, in order for me to be able to have this book available, I would have to jack up the price so much. And I just, that's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And so the ebook allows me to self publish it, which can keep the price down for students and it allows um, the constant updates. So I think it's the best solution, at least for now. Yeah. Because it, it costs a lot of money to keep it going, like a lot of monthly costs to keep it going. Okay. Yeah, and the the individual volumes are really not that expensive. And I like, too, the review uh, sections are, are really nice because you can, like you said, you've got the little tab and you can take the quiz and you get instant feedback. And then if you want some more review, there's a video right there. Yeah. So you've seen it? Oh, yeah. I have the, uh, I have the, first, uh, the first volume. Oh, nice. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that you like it. Yeah, it's great. I like it a lot. I wanted to talk a bit about the format of the book. Although first, you mentioned several times in the text and in a lot of the videos too, the, the concept of high yield structures. Mm -hmm. And this is a term we've heard a lot in medical ed education. Can you talk about that? What, is, what does that really mean? So what that means is I take out all the details that aren't clinically relevant or aren't important for you to understand the big concepts, because 
one of the reasons I wanted to start the books is because a lot of the books that are available are too detailed. Mm -hmm. And so I think as long as I'm upfront that I'm saying, you know, this doesn't include everything. And if this isn't for my specific class, like your teacher may want you to know something else. But in order to understand the actual concepts you need to know, that's what I consider high yield. So like origin and insertion, I know 20 something years ago, we used to make all students know all of that. Well, nowadays, most medical or other health professions schools are not doing that. And so why do all these books still have that? And why do they have all these complicated dissection instructions instead of like, who cares where you cut the skin? You're reflecting all the skin. And so these students were getting just so overwhelmed. They're like, well, they said to cut the skin here. And what if I cut it over here? I'm like, it doesn't matter. You're reflecting it. So some things like that, where it's, you know, it's just not as important, but it's hard because different people think different things are important. But I think that since I've seen anatomy education in a couple different settings, I kind of just combined all of that to come up with what is actually more relevant, I think. Okay. Makes sense. I think you actually actually wrote it in uh, one of the books. You're looking at the forest, not the trees. Yes. And you mentioned how you don't want students to just memorize things. You want them to actually learn and, and retain them. Yeah. Which, which I think those books that have so much detail, it's, it's hard to, I mean, you have to memorize it. That's the only way to get through all the material. Right. So that is my mantra in everything that I teach. Because a lot of times I see students memorize something and then they may do well on the exam, but they forget it later. Like, I can't tell you how many of my med students do really well in anatomy. And then, you know, a year and a half later, when they're sitting down to study for step, they're like, oh, my gosh, I don't remember any of this. Right. And it's not that they necessarily did anything wrong. They did well, but they didn't learn it in a way that promotes retention. And I feel like with all the shifts in education, with the flip classroom and stuff like that, I think we're shifting more towards that. But my my role as the educator, I think, is to help students figure that out. And so I try my best to promote understanding stuff rather than memorization. And I feel like testing people on concepts is a way better use of my time and their time than to try to get them to memorize all the details. So it is forest from the trees, because in a test for anatomy, they're not going to say, you know, what is the exact origin of this? They're going to say, you know, so-and-so has this injury at this place, what nerve is affected? And if that nerve is affected, what symptoms is the patient going to have? So if you have isolated that into a bunch of different compartments in your head, like if you can tell me all the muscles in the arm and all the innervation, but if you don't understand how they all go together and you don't understand the concepts, so the forest, I don't care if you know all the trees, you can't apply that information to a conceptual question and you won't do well. So I think by focusing on on the the whole picture, it just helps students do better overall. Yeah, absolutely. I, in many of the videos, you, you're you not only, you know, naming the structures, but you're also, it seems like you're focusing more on, on the function and using the function of, say, the muscles to remember what they are and what they're called, mm -hmm. which makes it, makes it probably a lot easier to remember. I know reading through the book, there were a lot of times where I was like, uh, I remember these terms, but I've forgotten a lot of what they are and where they are and things like that. So I'm certainly guilty of the memorization thing in the past. I think we all are. <laughs> yeah. That's just, you know, that's, that's how we were taught. Yeah. Right. So the, the, the basic format of, of the book, you start with the osteology for each section. 
and then move up in complexity from there to the muscles, nerves, vasculature. And then you get into the basic dissection instructions, which is where most of the videos are. And of course, you list also the high yield structures for each area. I think that the dissection instructions is, you know, many anatomy books don't have that. It's like dissection is a separate book or something. So it's nice that you incorporate that right into the same book. Right. That's why I like I liked putting it all together, because as I mentioned earlier, students usually have a bunch of different resources and they have to try to figure out how to put them all together. So if we could put it all together for them, it would just make it a lot easier. And one day I'd like to incorporate all my lectures into there too, because right now they're separate. And ideally it would be in like the overview chapter. I would have a lecture explaining it in a video, just like I have the dissection. Okay. But like I mentioned, there's a lot of copyright issues that go into that. And so I do have a medical illustrator that I'm talking to right now, and we're working on that, but that's that's a long way off. Okay. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that. A lot of the illustrations, as, as far as like the copywriting and things like that, but it looks like you've, you get them from, uh, what's it called? Shutterstock, I think. Yeah. Most of the book, or most of the pictures in the book I purchased okay. or I took myself. Okay. That makes sense. And of course, all of the videos are, are your own. You, you own those. Mm -hmm. Right. And I want to clarify about the videos. I don't mean to make it sound like nobody is willing to help me. I have the most wonderful teaching assistants and students in the world, sure. and they have all offered to help me. It's more so that I never really have a set time that I'm going to work on it. So it'll be like a random day where I'm like, oh, I have a little bit of time. Let me go do this. And at that point, it wouldn't be fair of me to then try to get someone to help me. So it's it's me not letting people help me. It's not that <laughs> I don't have people willing to help because I have plenty. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. All right. So like we mentioned, there's two of the five volumes are available now. When can we expect the third one? Ah, uh, hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> actually right now um, with what's happening with COVID, I had to stop anatomy lab and we actually just were about to start thorax and abdomen. And so I've been sick, but I'm hoping that next week, if I'm feeling a little bit better, I can actually go into the lab and create a lot of content for them since usually the organs are students' favorite part of the class. And so it breaks my heart that we had to stop anatomy lab because a lot of them are undergrad students this semester. My spring class is usually mostly undergrads and they, a lot of them have been waiting to get into this class for four years and now they finally got to take it and then we had to stop the lab. So I'm trying to figure out a way to bring that content to them. So my plan, if I'm, you know, able to go into the lab, I'm going to do these dissections and record them for them. And so because I'm going to be doing that for them anyway, I would have the content for the next volume. And then it's more so just getting it all in the book. So my original plan was um, to have the next volume or maybe even two, like mid to end of this year. But we'll we'll see. A lot of our plans have been kind of changed right now with what's going on in the world. Sure. So I don't want to make any promises. Yeah. That's, that's true. The next few months will be kind of up in the air. Um, how long, kind of from start to finish, how long did each of the two previous volumes take, roughly? Um, well, writing it actually is not the most time-consuming thing. So writing it for me, I just sit down and I think of whatever I would do if I was dissecting it, and I just write it. Like, Actually, the words for volume two, I wrote in a car on my way back from my grandma's house after Christmas this year. 
like that part is not hard. The the hard part is the technology. Sure. <laughs> so the technology, so just recording all those videos itself takes a long time. Then like getting them on the computer, um, editing anything if it needs edited, which most of them, as you probably noticed, I don't edit. Like I'm a very real, very transparent person. Right. Um, you can tell that a lot of them are not edited. Um, and that's the way I prefer it. It makes it more real to me, I think. Yeah. Um, so, but you, you still have to get them on the computer and then I have to, you know, upload them to the hosting website and then um, all the pictures that are labeled. So I label all of those by hand using my iPad. And so that takes a lot of time and then getting those into the book and then getting all of that put together. So the technology is really the hard part. Plus each video has to be created into a widget to be put into the book. And then I have to figure out how to get it published online onto my website, which I had to learn computer coding. I wish I would have known that before I started this. Didn't realize I'd have to do that. <laughs> but so really it's just the technology, like all of it. I don't try to, you know, copy any other books or anything. It's really just from my experience in anatomy, what do I think is going to be helpful? And I just basically put that all on paper or type it and put it in the book. So that part for me is the least of the problems. It's more so the technology. So if I, if I wasn't me, I'd probably hire somebody to do that for me, but I don't know. (laughs) Right. So you do all of that yourself. Yeah. At least right now. No, I can, I can relate. I mean, I do all the, the uh, editing and the uploading, whatever for the podcast all myself. So yeah, I'm sure it takes forever. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's one of those things. Once you learn the technology, it gets easier, but it takes a while. There's it's a, it's a steep learning curve. Exactly. Like volume one took way longer than the other volumes are going to take because just figuring out how to do all of that was really difficult. But now I mean, now that I've done it once, I can easily do it a couple more times. So I'm, I think the next couple will be faster. Great. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of them. I'm actually still working through the first one, but uh, hopefully I'll catch up. I think you'll like the, the thorax one because it's organs, which we like. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's much more. Um, I, hopefully I'll feel like I remember more of that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sarah, this has been great. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I, I know you're really busy. Is there anything else you wanted to mention that I haven't asked you? I don't think so. I just wanted to thank you for starting this podcast. I think it's really great. I think the pathology world needs it. And I know it probably takes a lot of work for you. So thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, you were. I You know, when I first started doing this, I made a list of people that I wanted to have on for sure. And you were way up on, on the list. So I'm, I'm glad we could make this happen. Me too. Thank you. Great big thank you to Sarah Garner. And of course, the book series again is called Garner's Guide to Gross Anatomy. And you can find out more about those books at garnersgrossanatomy.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to that site as well as Sarah's social media account. The Tulane PA students have an Instagram account as well, and I'll, I'll put a link to that as well. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path or go to my website, peopleofpathology.podbeam.com. I'd like to wish a happy PA day to all my pathologist assistant colleagues out there. And let's not forget, next week is Lab Week as well. The theme this year is the Fellowship of the Lab, and this might be my absolute favorite theme for Lab Week ever. So happy Lab Week to everyone as well. 
Uh, I am a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.